Part 9, Section 47 of The Dark Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn Spencer Kerridge. The Dark Flower by John Galsworthy. Section 47. Back in the darkness and solitude of the studio, when she was gone, he sat down before the fire, his senses in a whirl. Why was he not just an ordinary animal of a man that could enjoy what the gods had sent? It was as if on a November day someone had pulled aside the sober curtains of the sky, and there in a chink had been April standing. Thick, white blossom, a purple cloud, a rainbow, grass-vivid green, light flaring from one knew not where, and such a tingling passion of life on it all as made the heart stand still. This, then, was the marvellous, enchanting, maddening end of all that year of restlessness and wanting, this bit of spring suddenly given to him in the midst of autumn. Her lips, her eyes, her hair, her touching confidence. Above all, quite unbelievable, her love. Not really love, perhaps, just childish fancy. But on the wings of fancy, this child would fly far, too far, all wistfulness and warmth beneath the light veneer of absurd composure. To live again, to plunge back into youth and beauty, to feel spring once more, to lose the sense of all being over, save just the sober jog-trot of domestic bliss. To know, actually to know, ecstasy again in the love of a girl. To rediscover all that youth yearns for, and feels, and hopes, and dreads, and loves. It was a prospect to turn the head even of a decent man. By just closing his eyes, he could see her standing there with the firelight glow on her red frock, could feel again that marvellous thrill when she pressed herself against him in the half-innocent, seducing moment when she first came in, could feel again her eyes drawing, drawing him. She was a witch, a grey-eyed, brown-haired witch, even unto her love of red. She had the witch's power of lighting fever in the veins. And he simply wondered at himself that he had not, as she stood there in the firelight, knelt and put his arms round her and pressed his face against her waist. Why had he not? But he did not want to think. The moment thought began, he knew he must be torn this way and that, tossed here and there between reason and desire, pity and passion. Every sense struggled to keep him wrapped in the warmth and intoxication of this discovery that he, in the full of autumn, had awakened love in spring. It was amazing that she could have this feeling, yet there was no mistake. Her manner to Sylvia just now had been almost dangerously changed. There had been a queer, cold impatience in her look, frightening from one who but three months ago had been so affectionate. And going away, she had whispered, with that old trembling up at him, as if offering to be kissed. I may come, mayn't I? And don't be angry with me, please. I can't help it. A monstrous thing at his age to let a young girl love him, compromise her future. A monstrous thing by all the canons of virtue and gentility. And yet, what future? With that nature, those eyes, that origin, with that father and that home, but he would not, simply must not think. Nevertheless, he showed the signs of thought, and badly, for after dinner, Sylvia, 
putting her head on his forehead, said, You're working too hard, Mark. You don't go out enough. He held those fingers fast. Sylvia. No, indeed, he must not think. But he took advantage of her words and said that he would go out and get some air. He walked at a great pace to keep thought away till he reached the river close to Westminster and, moved by sudden impulse, seeking perhaps an antidote, turned down into that little street under the Big Wren Church where he had never been since the summer night when he lost what was then more to him than life. There she had lived. There was the house, those windows which he had stolen past and gazed at with such distress and longing. Who lived there now? Once more, he seemed to see that face out of the past, the dark hair and dark soft eyes and sweet gravity, and it did not reproach him. For this new feeling was not a love like that had been. Only once could a man feel the love that passed all things, the love before which the world was but a spark in a draught of wind, the love that whatever dishonour, grief and unrest it might come through, alone had in it the heart of peace and joy and honour. Fate had torn that love from him, nipped it off as a sharp wind nips off a perfect flower. This new feeling was but a fever, a passionate fancy, a grasping once more at youth and warmth. Ah, well, but it was real enough. And in one of those moments when a man stands outside himself, seems to be lifted away and see his own life twirling, Lennon had a vision of a shadow driven here and there, a straw going round and round, a midge in the grip of a mad wind. Where was the home of this mighty secret feeling that sprang so suddenly out of the dark and caught you by the throat? Why did it come now and not then, for this one and not that other? What did man know of it, save that it made him spin and hover, like a moth intoxicated by a light, or a bee by some dark sweet flower? save that it made of him a distraught, humble, eager puppet of its fancy. Had it not once already driven him even to the edge of death? And must it now come on him again with its sweet madness, its drugging scent? What was it? Why was it? Why these passionate obsessions that could not decently be satisfied? Had civilization so outstripped man that his nature was cramped into shoes too small? like the feet of a Chinese woman. What was it? Why was it? And faster than ever, he walked away. Palmal brought him back to that counterfeit presentment of the real reality. There in St. James's Street was Johnny Dromore's club. And again, moved by impulse, he pushed open its swing door. No need to ask, for there was Dromore in the hall, on his way from dinner to the card room. The glossy tan of hard exercise and good living lay on his cheeks as thick as clotted cream. His eyes had the peculiar shine of superabundant vigour. A certain subfestive air in face and voice and movements suggested that he was going to make a night of it. And the sardonic thought flashed through Lennon. Shall I tell him? Hello, old chap. Awfully glad to see you. What are you doing with yourself? Working hard? How's your wife? You been away? Been doing anything great? And then the question that would have given him his chance, if he had liked to be so cruel. Seen Nell? Yes, she came round this afternoon. What do you think of her? Coming on nicely, isn't she? That old query, half furtive and half proud, 
as much as to say, I know she's not in the stud book, but mm, I sired her. And then the old sudden gloom, which lasted but a second, and gave way again to chaff. Lennon stayed very few minutes. Never had he felt farther from his old school chum. No, whatever happened, Johnny Draymore must be left out. It was a position he had earned with his goggling eyes and his astute philosophy. From it, he should not be disturbed. He passed along the railings of the Green Park. On the cold air of this last October night, a thin haze hung and the acrid fragrance from little bonfires of fallen leaves. What was there about that scent of burned leaf smoke that had always moved him so? Symbol of parting. That most mournful thing in all the world. For what would even death be but for parting? Sweet, long sleep or new adventure. But if a man loved others, to leave them or be left. Ah, and it was not death only that brought partings. He came to the opening of the street where Dromore lived. She would be there, sitting by the fire in the big chair, playing with her kitten, thinking, dreaming and alone. He passed on at such a pace that people stared. Till turning the last corner for home, he ran almost into the arms of Oliver Dromore. The young man was walking with unaccustomed indecision, his fur coat open, his opera hat pushed up on his crisp hair. Dark under the eyes, he had not the proper gloss of a Dromore at this season of the year. Mr Lennon, I've just been round to you. And Lennon answered dazedly, Will you come in or shall I walk your way a bit? I'd rather out here if you don't mind. So in silence they went back into the square and Oliver said, let's get over by the rails. They crossed to the railings of the square's dark garden where nobody was passing. And with every step, Lennon's humiliation grew. There was something false and undignified in walking with this young man who had once treated him as a father confessor to his love for Nell. And suddenly he perceived that they had made a complete circuit of the square garden without speaking a single word. Yes, he said. Oliver turned his face away. You remember what I told you in the summer? Well, it's worse now. I've been going a mucker lately in all sorts of ways to try and get rid of it. But it's all no good. She's got me. And Lennon thought, you're not alone in that. But he kept silence. His chief dread was of saying something that he would remember afterwards as the words of Judas. Then Oliver suddenly burst out. Why can't she care? I suppose I'm nothing much, but she has known me all her life. And she used to like me. There's something I can't make out. Could you do anything for me with her? Lennon pointed across the street. In every other one of those houses, Oliver, he said, there's probably some creature who can't make out why another creature doesn't care. Passion comes when it will, goes when it will, and we poor devils have no say in it. What do you advise me then? Lennon had an almost overwhelming impulse to turn on his heel and leave the young man standing there. But he forced himself to look at his face, which even then had its attraction. Perhaps more so than ever, so pallid and desperate it was. And he said slowly, staring mentally at every word, I'm not up to giving you advice. The only thing I might say is, one does not press oneself where one isn't wanted. All the same, who knows? So long as she feels you're there, waiting, she might turn to you at any moment. 
The more chivalrous you are, Oliver, the more patiently you wait, the better chance you have. Oliver took those words of little comfort without flinching. I see, he said. Thanks. But my God, it's hard. I never could wait. And with that epigram on himself, holding out his hand, he turned away. Lennon went slowly home, trying to gauge exactly how anyone who knew all would judge him. It was a little difficult in this affair to keep a shred of dignity. Sylvia had not gone up, and he saw her looking at him anxiously. The one strange comfort in all this was that his feeling for her, at any rate, had not changed. It seemed even to have deepened, to be more real to him. How could he help staying awake that night? How could he help thinking, then? And long time he lay staring at the dark, as if thinking were any good for fever in the veins. End of section 47. Recording by Carolyn Spencer Carriage.